The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you on behalf of IONS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Our guest today, Brooke Grove, MA, is a near-death experiencer, integrative healer, shamanic energy medicine practitioner, and spirit-inspired writer. A former psychotherapist, Brooke has advanced degrees in clinical psychology, marital and family therapy, and clinical art therapy. Brooke is the mother of two highly intuitive children, whom she calls her esteemed wisdom teachers. She maintains a private international healing practice, offering remote services where the goal is to explore, transmute, and empower the evolution in human consciousness through gratitude, service, and light. Brooke, welcome to NDE Radio. Hi, Lee. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's wonderful. And uh, I am envious of of your uh, fine weather on the West Coast. (laughs) (laughs) Brooke, I, I learned from a past interview you've done that as a child you had a natural intuitiveness that was shamed out of you, is the way you put it. Mm-hmm. And then from the age of 23 to 29, you had a misdiagnosed disease that finally nearly killed you. And you've said the disease, Wagner's, is an inflammation of the heart that moves from the heart to the rest of your body. So I, I was wondering, do you suppose that suppression of your natural intuition contributed to your illness? Oh, absolutely, Lee. I, in addition to having the gifts uh, shamed out, I also am a polytrauma survivor, and the trauma was likewise um, put under the rug, for lack of better terms, and denied. And so the combination of those two factors led to my body expressing its disease, so definitely. Mm. Well, Brooke, tell us how the culmination of your illness led to an emergency helicopter flight to Johns Hopkins and uh, about the NDE that you had there. Okay, well, as I've described in some other interviews, it was actually not Wegner's. So they believed it to be, but they were treating me with medication that severely impacted the liver. And the liver was already involved. In fact, it was failing. So when I took the medication, it ended up shutting down the liver rapidly. And then that took the already compromised lungs and kidneys with it, which put me into an unconscious state, at which point I was held helicoptered uh, to John Hopkins. And from there, I only remember uh, leaving the body in ICU. And I know it to be ICU, particularly now, because a lot of the um, the nurse and treatment facility are wearing the exact same hazmat-like outfits they were working on me with. And so as I'm floating out of the body, I thought I was viewing an X-Files episode. I was not sure what I was looking at until I realized that that was my body. And yet even then, it didn't appear to be my body. It was so inflamed and so swollen and purple and yellow. So I thought I was having a lucid dream for a few moments as those have been part of my experience, but I would try to pull myself out of it and I couldn't do that. And then it was like suddenly as I was seeing the situation that was very earth-based, I was transported into what I can only describe as the cosmos. It was very much 
uh, like a photo of NASA that you have seen or the best photos you've seen of NASA and just pump up that resolution. But what was most magnificent was while I had retained my personality and my, my consciousness, I felt embraced by this love that only the, you know, the mystics, Rumi and, and the Sufis write about. I'd never experienced it in this incarnation. And suddenly all around me was nothing but this feeling of being cradled and held. And in clinical terms, what secure attachment would feel like to the baby. Mm-hmm. And so as I'm in the space, I'm just overwhelmed by this feeling of love and that I'm noticing that everything is being communicated to me. And I have this way of knowing and understanding, which reminded me of being an intuitive child. The lights were communicating and there were no words necessary. It was just known through the heart, um, through the light, uh, through telepathy, for lack of better terms. Mm -hmm. And I was met by three guides. And they were, again, this very, very familiar as if they'd been with me uh, much more than just this one lifetime. And they had distinct colors. And those were colors that I had seen as a child all the time in my home when I was very young. And so I spent most of my journey with them. There was the beautiful, indescribable source light that was very much present, but I had almost from the get-go of arriving in this space, this desire to be there, but then also this, I don't want to call it trepidation, but it was almost like a hesitancy to move forward into the source light. How close did you get, or did you go toward the source and then come back? Yes, I ebbed and flowed. Like, like, as I was saying, there was this pull to want to go there, but then I'd get closer and then I'd kind of just pivot back. And the, as I know them to be angelic, the lights were communicating with me that it was okay that I could do either. In my particular case, I was given a choice. And so I don't know how long I sat with that choice because I was comatose for three, over three days. And yet when you're in that space, three days feels like years. Yes. Well, some people who've had just a few minutes say it feels like days. So I can imagine the, the yeah. length of time you were in a coma. Wow. Um, I, I think at an, on another point, you also had talked about um, perhaps uh, communicating about a soul contract with these with these orbs. Yes, I when I was given the information or the inner knowing that I had the opportunity to stay or go, it was made evident to me that if I were to stay, I would come back to complete the work that I was here to do here and now, and. Um, from the level of consciousness and the karma and the ancestral trauma I was carrying, the part of me still somehow connected to the human very much did not want to do that. Having been through so much trauma here and now, it was like, you know, this intuitive knowing that I could come back here and I could do this. And they told me, they said it wasn't going to be easy initially. And it was said in the most loving vernacular, our human words just fail to describe the way that they communicate. So it wasn't said harshly. It was just that if I came back, it was going to be quite difficult for many years. But I had the strength and ultimately I would rise through it and fulfill my purpose. 
or I could stay there and eventually reincarnate and come back to do the work then. But there was this inner knowing in that space that there were a lot of others like me here and now, or that there were about to be. And so I knew I was going to be supported and they made that known as well. Uh, which is at the point that I noticed these two lights that I've described before, which were very unlike the angelics. And it was pivotal to me that they showed themselves at that exact moment because they gave me much of the courage to come back. I didn't understand at the time who they were, but I was enchanted by their lights and felt very called back to the body by them. Mm. And those turned out to be your children, didn't they? Yes, they did. They're the exact oh. aura colors that they both have now. And you say they are very intuitive, and you're certainly anything but repressing their intuitiveness. How how uh, how do you see the uh, do you see the do you feel that they knew you in in your NDE? Do you suppose they uh, retain any memory of that encounter with you? Well, my now seven-year-old, around three, when we would do our gratitude and prayer practice at night, I always would ask him what he was thankful for. And probably around three and a half, he goes, that when we were in the stars, he chose me. Oh, wow. That's that's amazing. Huh. Do you have any inkling of what their soul contract is, what their assignment is for their lives? I don't. However, my eldest seems to be highly aware that he is going to complete much of the work that I'm here to do. And he's not so grandiose as to say him himself, but definitely the children like him. Um, he's told me that point blank many times. Uh, his reaction to the current pandemic and what we've been going through has been... I, I've never seen someone take something with such grace and ease when there's so much unknown and so much um, fear being put out there. And so it definitely feels as if this generation of children are more powerful way showers in the sense that they don't seem to have all the karma to work through that so many of us do, particularly if the parents are doing the work. When he sees me go through a shadow period or really work on myself deeply, he'll always say, thank you for doing that for us. And just very keenly aware and the the level of empathy um, that they naturally exude and just just the gifts. I mean, how intact they are. It's half the stuff he says he blows my mind every time he opens his mouth, <laughs> to be honest. Well, are they part of the rainbow children generation? Yeah, he well, it's funny because you know, I called him a, um, a crystal kid or an indigo, and he goes, No, mom, I'm a diamond, get the vernacular right. <laughs> and I was like, Oh my gosh, I didn't, I've never even talked to him about that, but he just knew he was like, No, we're the next wave. <laughs> wow, so well, I mean, if the earth is going to be saved from its environmental catastrophes, we're going to need those children to, to uh, recognize the importance of community and working together, definitely. Yeah. So to to get back to um, well, let let me ask you another question. Do you feel, based on your experience, that you had a hand in choosing your social contract, or was it all a, an assignment from the light? 
I feel that we all have a role in choosing it, that, um, you know, it's a combination from what I see in people's fields and my work. It's a combination of our ancestral, you know, lineage, our karma. But then there's also the, the resilience and the divine purpose of that soul. And so I definitely feel that I've had a hand or had a direct hand in choosing this path. Um, you know, it's hard for some people when they hear the intimate details of my story because they're like, why would you choose all of that trauma? But I've come to a point where I actually call it traumatude. It's um, transmuted into a, an a state of gratitude. All of these lessons have been hard fought, yet the pain has been medicine. It's become an ultimate form of intelligence and it allows me to work at a much higher capacity with the light as a healer. Yeah. Now you were um, declared brain dead and mm -hmm. got last rites. Uh, how did, how uh, did your family take your recovery and do they, uh, did they recognize how quickly, let me say, did they recognize that you had changed in your perspective on things? Ah, it took some time because initially when I when I first woke up, because of being declared brain dead and having such a low Glasgow score, um, nobody expected me to be in there. And so by the time I finally caught the attention of the nursing staff um, and then the intubator, intubation, excuse me, tubes were taken out three days later when I could breathe on my own, I was not too happy. My human was a little upset, mm. um, mostly because at that point, no one had told me what had happened. And other than my liver had failed, which made no sense to me because my liver, per my understanding, wasn't involved. Um, but once I actually was able to start um, expressing myself and they started to see the rapid shifts in the hospital. I mean, my prognosis was incredibly poor. I was told I was going to need dialysis the rest of my life, that, you know, I might be on respiratory machines, et cetera, et cetera. And I worked with the light every single night and as much as I could in the day without being seen because I wasn't really sure what I was doing. <laughs> I was communicating <laughs> with, with forces that are unseen to most. So mm. I would do it at nighttime and my family would come in and see the rapid shifts. And I had been told I'd be in ICU for many, 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 many weeks, possibly months, and then to a lower level of care. Yet I was out of ICU into that lower level of care and out of the hospital in under four weeks. Wow. Did you tell anyone about your NDE right away? I told my now ex-husband and he was supportive, but also not much of a believer, kind of thought it was a dream. So I reached out to someone, I had been working with a Taoist master and he had always been describing these three angelic guides to me. And so I, when I was able to finally email, I wrote him and I said, can you describe them to me? I, I, and I told him I had this experience and it felt more real than anything I'd ever known, but my scientific mind was still grasping and struggling. And he described them exactly like I encountered them. And then he was the first to tell me, because I think that was in the first 24 hours that I had my phone back. Um, you know, they are not just there, call on them, they'll work with you. And so it was just from that simple instruction that then the work at night began. 
do you think uh, similar, uh, let's call them angels, are available to everyone? I do. I do believe we have to foster a relationship with them. Um, in my experience, I can recall I had um, some close encounters with death prior to this. And I recall those angelic beings being in the ER then. And not, I, at the time, I thought I was just losing consciousness or, you know, had been concussed or something of that effect, but it specifically was their energy beings. I know with my children, I see theirs around them. Often when we're at parks, I see the angelics on children because they're so naturally open. Um, but it is something we have to ask for. We all do have teams of the highest light and resonance, but we do have to ask for their assistance. So it's definitely something that's there for us all. And there's different types of guides. I see um, a lot of power animals with people, beloved ancestors and the lights you know there's different types for different folks and some of us have large teams some of us have small but the relationships vary based on our participation and openness to it do you recall besides uh the the telepathic communication did you hear anything like uh, music or any sounds when you were on the other side Yes, there. I do a lot of sound baths and sound healingness now because there's something about the quality to the angelic vocals that a lot of the practitioners bring in and also the gong that was very familiar about being in that space. So when I was first, uh, it's really easy for me to go out of my body. And when I was first learning to ground the gifts, I found sound baths and I would cry the entire time because it felt like the sounds and the vibrations, particularly the sound vibrations that were in that space alongside the light vibration. So there's this, there's duality of light and sound that's so potent. At least it was for me in that realm. Hmm. Are there recordings, uh, CDs? I mean, how do you, how do you generate the sound that when you take, a sound bath, as you're describing. Um, they're using Tibetan quartz bowls, which are all attuned to the chakras. So there's one for each chakra. And then additionally, there are gongs and they can be planetary or they can be related to certain stars. And so like for Chiron, the wounded healer, there's a gong actually for that. And when they hit it, it sends out this vibration that's super, 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 super intense um, beyond words. But it will actually clear things from the physical mental, spiritual, emotional bodies. And it was very similar in the light. Like there was, there was a vibration and sound that was constantly expanding because my, I myself was an orb of sorts, not the same as the angelics or even my son, but I could see my field coming in and out based on how I was receiving the information from my team of life. Oh, so our, our spiritual bodies are a vibration, you would say. Uh, most definitely, most definitely. And you see that when we're working in the energetic fields of folks as well, is that the physical body has its one most often much more dense uh, way of being. And then there's the emotional and the mental is even separate from that. And then the spiritual is very different. And lastly, when people are transitioning, as I can see, now, uh, the soul body, as it actually exits, has a very profound, unique, energetic signature. Hmm. Now, in that other interview, you mentioned St. Michael as mm -hmm. a specific angel that has uh, uh, surrounded you, I guess, and, and, um, and protected you. Tell us a little about that. 
Well, uh, without going into detail as to the traumas, when I was very young, I always had this like premonition right before something was about to happen. And yet I was very timid and shy and distrustful. And so I would ask just for, you know, to be safe, no matter what happened. And I would go out of my body during a lot of the experiences, but there would be like this electric blue, um, like color that came about and this feeling that no matter what happened, I was going to persevere, that I was bigger than what was happening to my body or, you know, um, human in that situation. And, uh, as I said, so many close encounters with death, with uh, car accidents, head traumas, et cetera, et cetera, prior to the coma. And every time I would feel this powerful presence and knowing that all of these things that I was going through, they weren't going to break me. They were going to make me stronger. And so I always trusted when that energy was around, that no matter how I felt in the moment, I was going to make it through. And so he's someone I always call on. And anytime that I feel, you know, scared or want some extra protection, my seven-year-old does the same exact thing. If he, you know, he'll tell me, I woke up in the middle of the night and I felt a funky energy. So I called Archangel Michael and it was all good. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Saint Michael, the Archangel, is the is a warrior. He's yeah. uh, he's the one we call on to uh, to uh, contest with the fallen angels, I guess, in the in the old Catholic tradition. Yeah. Were you raised Catholic, by the way? I was. I attended Catholic school from uh, pre-K all the way to eighteen. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, well, you know, I I was raised Catholic too, and and I think. Uh, there's something in the Catholic uh, tradition that says, give me a child to the age of seven and I'll give you a Catholic for life. <laughs> so many of us split off in our teenage years and yet we carry, I mean, I identify strongly with St. Michael myself, mm-hmm. who is my, uh, uh, I needed a name when I was being confirmed and he was my confirmation name. Yeah. Um, what, um, you had said, I think, uh, coming uh, coming back uh, from the coma, that you were seeing auras and angels in other rooms in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, were these uh, angels for other people, or were they are they just kind of standing at a distance for you? No, they were the teams of others, and that was one of the hardest things for me. Is um, you know, I was uh, in my candidacy for becoming a clinical psychologist, and I open my eyes, and it's glass walls all through ICU, and suddenly I'm seeing all of the angelics and the energetic signatures and the disease that's on all the other um, patients surrounding me in the hospital, and particularly when they would call a code blue or code red, the rooms would often light up with whatever teams were surrounding and protecting them or who was ever there for their transition. Because um, when they would transition and the soul body would depart, the angelics would go up with them. So it was something that took a moment to get used to seeing (laughs) um, and not question. But once I began to truly um, be open to it and start to look at it like uh, using a little bit of my analytical training and saying, okay, what 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 can we take from this? What is what is opening to us? What is revealing itself? How do we communicate with this? Then it became fun. Mm-hmm. 
I think you also, though, said at some point that uh, seeing other people's auras is no fun. <laughs> well, yes. If you're seeing them all the time, which was something I didn't understand in the beginning, going back to working with spirit and that you have to ask for assistance, you can also set very firm boundaries. And what I didn't realize when I first opened up was that I was basically like a super highway and anything that wanted to come through could. And that's because I didn't I hadn't set any boundaries. I didn't know that I had as the sovereign integral of my field the power to do that. And so I was, you know, just walking down the street and there's a lot of people that you don't want to encounter what's attached to them. And so that would be very overwhelming, particularly as a trauma survivor, because I had a natural tendency to be wary of certain people. And then to suddenly be able to see it all the time, it did. That was part of the the hard initial first seven years for me was I didn't want to see it all the time and I didn't know how to turn it off. And then at the same time, having been a clinician, I was scared to tell my therapist the level of what I was seeing and uh, ask for in in turning it off. And then eventually I found the right combination of healers that were open to this and had experienced this and they helped me learn to set boundaries. And then I learned I could cloak persons or that I could ask spirit to only reveal it when I'm in ceremony or prayer. Um, And that changed everything. Mm. I think you said when when you discovered the shamanic that that was the, that was a a big change in your direction. Perhaps that was the time when you decided to, to give up uh, the the medical approach to psycho uh, psychological conditions and, and take up the, more of the spiritual. Yes, it had definitely been gradually shifting. I had tried transpersonal psychology after leaving clinical, and I just found that they were talking about the right things, but it wasn't really doing anything for me as far as my own lived experience. Plus, they were they were still looking at it scientifically. A lot of the times it was like, oh, we're interested in peak experiences, we're interested in near-death experiences, we're interested in out-of-body experiences, but they weren't actually experiencers. And so it's very different when you're going through something versus looking at it analytically. Now with shamanic, it was completely different. There were all of these wisdom traditions throughout ages and through across, you know, all continents that had saw so much of what I've been through as a shamanic initiation. And this was an opportunity to step into your medicine and to step into your power. And that's why these things had occurred. And for me, the shamanic was so, so helpful because again, I was constantly dissociating from the body, both as a trauma survivor and a near-death experiencer. And so shamanism taught me how to really pull in to the body, pull back down into the earth star chakra, how to be a walker between worlds, which is what I knew I now was and had been, just didn't had it denied as a child. And now it was amplified a thousandfold. And now you're helping other people with, with what you've learned. Mm-hmm. Um, how, uh, how would someone go about, um, reaching you if they wanted to consult with you? You can go to my website, which is www.brook with an E grove healing.com. And you can send me, uh, any kind of contact information through there. There's multiple forms and we can talk. Well, that sounds, that sounds great. Um, 
shamanic is sort of a general term as i understand it i mean there are different traditions within the shamanic that and it sounds like you're drawing on the things that you feel work best is that am i correct in that Yes, I mean I've I've trained with various shamans of indigenous persons from around the world. So I have some Peruvian uh, ceremonies that I really love, Chilean, a lot of Native American. So it just depends what's most appropriate. Taoist as well. So it yeah, what works best for the individual? Usually that's coming through spirit because I'm in ceremony for about an hour before I work with persons, and then when I actually go into the energetic field, I'm working with their team and my teams as well and a lot of information comes through from spirit which actually is often stuff I myself haven't practiced but it's specific for the person and their lineage and their ancestry and so I just work with spirit to clarify and create homework and then blend it with what I know works best. Mm. What do you think about the the um, use of ayahuasca? Personally, um, and this will be controversial to some, I'm against plant medicine um, for myself. And I think that there are persons that it does benefit if used appropriately with a true medicine person. But there are far too many people that are abusing it. And then it shouldn't be used as uh, the sole resource for tapping into the third eye, in my humble opinion. Um, I, in the holistic healing circles, there are plenty of people that are saying they're using it to open that door, but it's really being abused. And that's something I don't look favorably upon. I also know persons within that community, and I lost a friend myself to suicide because they were taking it too frequently as long as well as DMT. So oh. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. I, I believe our, our brain has the natural capacity that we don't need these things of the third eye is very capable. I can see in moderation with the right people that it's, it's beneficial, but unfortunately I, that's not been my lived experience. Yes. It's interesting that Johns Hopkins now I think is uh, the hospital that's exploring psychedelics as a, as a way of, as a use for therapy in the traditional Western medicine idea of therapy. Mm -hmm. And I worked with uh, Dr. Stan Groff when I was studying transpersonal psychology, who's well known for holotropic breath work and also was a pioneer in the psychedelic research movement early on. Um, and it was, he very much shares a, a polar opposite view to mine. But again, like, the medicine people and the monks and gurus uh, across time, there there's an ability to tap into all of this through just tapping into the one without any, you know, mind altering substances. So that's yes. my personal bias. <laughs> well, I, I agree. And I think, you know, uh, the NDE experience is, is certainly a, a um, valid uh, evidence that uh, we don't need to, uh, chemicals to to get there Definitely. if we're in, if we're invited it's it's a wonder but um, <laughs> it can be done through meditation as well brooke i we are out of time uh unfortunately this has been really interesting uh tell uh the listeners again how they can find your website www.brooke b-r-o-o-k-e grove g-r-o-v-e healing.com thank you so much brooke for for sharing the story of your NDE and, and how it changed the direction of your life. If listeners would like to hear the show again or any of our nearly 400 past shows, 
Just go to NDE Radio and hit the Past Shows button. For more about IANDS, go to their website at IANDS.org and listen again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening. <laughs>